Our reading this morning comes from Nehemiah chapter 6, uh, starting at verse 15 through to 7 verse 4. So, Nehemiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul with 52, in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that the work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were, sent many le- were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since his son-in-law uh, since, uh, since he was son-in-law to Shekana, son of Ara, and his son Jehonan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechai. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and telling, me, telling him what I said, and Tobias sent letters to intimidate me. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the music- musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, make them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own homes." Now the citadel was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. Let's pray as we come to think more about that passage. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that through your word you reveal yourself to us. Help us to know you better and to see better how to live for you. And pray that as we look at it this morning, your Holy Spirit would be working in us, helping us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Back to chapter 6 and verse 15, it said, So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. How wonderful to read that. We've been spending these last few weeks with Nehemiah as he worked towards the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall, and now it's finished. And in just 52 days must have felt wonderful. I don't know about you, but I love to, to complete something, to finish something. I just finished the novel I'd been reading uh, a week ago. It probably took me longer than it took them to build the wall, but I still felt great about it. Surely the Israelites must have felt still greater upon the completion of the wall. I imagine, that though, I imagine though that it wasn't a puffed up Uh, kind of self-conceited kind of uh, pleasure, because like the surrounding nations, Israel knew that they'd finished the wall with the help of God. Part of me wishes that verse 16 was the end of the book of Nehemiah, that it finished, this work had been done with the help of our God, and they all lived happily ever after. But the book doesn't finish there. It is wonderful that the wall has been completed, but things weren't perfect. We heard from Charlie a few weeks ago that throughout the book of Nehemiah, God is working on his wider plan. He'd promised Abraham way back in Genesis to bring about his kingdom, his people in his place under his rule and blessing. God's people had that to an extent when they came into the promised land, having been saved out of Egypt. Because of their disobedience, though, they were sent into exile. Now in Nehemiah, they're back from exile, the wall is built, 
things are looking up, but they're not yet perfect. You may well be thankful that we didn't have our whole reading this morning, but the whole passage that we're focusing on this morning is all of chapter 6 and chapter 7. One of the things in our passage that points towards the fact that things weren't yet perfect are the details we get about the gates. Have a look at chapter 7, verse 3. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Jerusalem, with its new wall in place, was heavily guarded. The gates were firmly shut at night, and they weren't to be opened until it was well and truly daytime, till the sun is hot, it says. And then before the the gatekeepers went off duty, the gates were to be closed again and firmly barred. Why all this security, though? Well, because God's people weren't safe. They had enemies. Though their return from exile had brought them a step closer uh, to God's promises to Abraham being completely fulfilled, things uh, weren't perfect yet. We can see it if we look all the way forward to the book of Revelation and look at John's description of the new Jerusalem uh, in the new creation, when God will once and for all bring about his kingdom in all its perfection. Speaking about the new Jerusalem, John writes, The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be shut. There will be no threat, no opposition for God's people. When God has brought about his promises in all their fullness, it's a wonderful thing to look forward to, eternity without threat or enemies or opposition. It's particularly wonderful that that's the case, because it's not our reality now, is it? It wasn't for Nehemiah and God's people then, and it's not the case for us now either. But part of our big takeaway from this passage today is the encouragement to endure opposition. We've seen opposition throughout the book of Nehemiah ever since we met Sanballat and Tobiah back in chapter 2 when they were disturbed that someone had gone to help the Israelites. There's been opposition throughout, but it's perhaps at its most uh, persistent and focused in chapter 6. It's uh, a chapter in which Nehemiah's opponents try to harm him, to intimidate him, to discredit him, and to undermine him. Look down with me at the beginning of chapter 6 from verse 1. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that point I had not yet set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Sanballat and Geshem had had enough of this Nehemiah guy, so they sent him a message saying, come now, Nehemiah, Uh, let's be civil, let's talk about this. Come and meet with us on the plain of Ono, and we'll have a nice face-to-face chat. But, fittingly, Nehemiah says, oh no, to meeting on the plain of Ono. You see, it was 27 miles away from Jerusalem. They were trying to lure him away from the increasing safety of the city so that they could get rid of him. Perhaps they'd already written the press release. We were to meet with Nehemiah, but terribly sadly, he was overtaken by bandits on the journey and never arrived. Our deepest condolences to his nearest and dearest. But Nehemiah is not having a bar of it. Verse 3, he sent messages, uh, messengers to them with the reply, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. 
Guys, I'm in the middle of quite the build. You may have heard about it. I really can't spare the time to come and meet with you at the moment. They sent the message four times, verse 4. But Nehemiah perseveres in saying, oh no, to oh no. Having, uh, having failed to harm him physically, they then try to discredit him. Verse 5, then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which he had written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. Sambalat's added again, reporting that there's this rumor going around that Israel is rebuilding in order to rebel and Nehemiah is going to be their king. And in a sense, it's true that there's this rumor because Sambalat is the one spreading it. Notice that he sent an unsealed letter. This meant that it was possible for the messenger and anyone he met along the way to read it before it got to Nehemiah. If Sambalat cared about discretion at all, he'd have sent a sealed warning to Nehemiah. But he is trying to intimidate him, not to warn him. And it may well have been intimidating. Remember that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes and that he'd received his blessing to go and help his people. Imagine if the news got back to the king that Nehemiah was actually planning a takeover. He could have been recalled or much, much worse. But again, Nehemiah endures the opposition. He says in verse 8, Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. Nehemiah is enduring opposition, but he's not depending on his own strength to do so. We get another one of his great arrow prayers that we've seen throughout the book in verse 9. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. Nehemiah's enemies, having tried to harm him and intimidate him, go on in chapter 6 to try to discredit him. Sambalat had been spreading the rumor that Nehemiah had prophets on his payroll, but in actual fact it was Sambalat who had been hiring prophets. Verses 10 to 13 tell us of Nehemiah going to the prophet Shemaiah and being warned of, of imminent danger and advised to shut himself in the temple for protection. But this would have discredited him with his people because by doing so, he would have broken the law. He wasn't a priest and therefore by the Jewish law, he wasn't allowed to shut himself in the temple in the way that he had been advised to do. If he'd done so, sure, he would have been safe physically, but he would have lost the respect of his people by breaking the law. They tried to harm him, intimidate him, and discredit him, and even then, uh, Tobiah carried on just chipping away, trying to undermine Nehemiah. We hear in verses 17 to 19 how Tobiah had links through business and marriage with some of Israel's nobles, and how they were always sending him letters reporting uh, to Nehemiah, uh, telling him all the good things that Tobiah did and reporting back to Tobiah everything that Nehemiah said. Must have been grueling, mustn't it, to be trying to lead God's people, but always to have had opponents uh, whispering in his ear. But Nehemiah endured and the wall was completed. In doing this, in enduring opposition, Nehemiah points us to Jesus, who, having come to the aid of God's people himself, endured all kinds of opposition. 
and ultimately where they were unsuccessful in luring Nehemiah outside the city so that they could kill him, they really did take Jesus outside of the city and really did kill him. As we seek to live as disciples of Jesus today, we can expect opposition, just as Nehemiah and Jesus himself experienced. And Christians today face all all the kinds of opposition that Nehemiah faced, harm, intimidation, being discredited, being undermined. While we may not be risking physical harm um, uh, today by being Christians, there are certainly places in the world where being known as a follower of Jesus is a serious risk to your life. It's why we focus on praying for the persecuted church once a month, uh, devoted on a Thursday morning. And though we might not face that kind of opposition, we will still face opposition if we're following Jesus. People do lose their jobs for expressing their Christian views. We might be thought less of by colleagues or friends by not holding socially acceptable uh, positions on hot topics because they're not in line with what the Bible teaches us. It might be closer to home. There might be discord even within families because some members are following Jesus and some aren't. It might be more subtle than that, like Nehemiah with the prophet Shemaiah. It might be people who profess to be Christians themselves kind of sidling up to us and saying, come on now, if you take a softer line on that point, people are really going to like you a lot more. We can expect opposition if we are living faithfully as God's people, but we can also endure it. We're told that we're to consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. I guess the question is, why endure it? Why, when we know that if we're living as Jesus' disciples, we'll face opposition, do we carry on living as Jesus' disciples? Well, we're to endure opposition, but that's only part of our takeaway from this passage this morning. I think our big takeaway from chapters 6 and 7 is endure opposition knowing God is fulfilling His purposes. Endure opposition knowing God is fulfilling His purposes. We saw how the closed gates pointed towards the imperfection of Israel's situation, but that's not all. Have a look down at chapter 7 and verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. Uh, Great, the walls completed, but where's the population? They were supposed to be God's people in God's place, but at the moment they're more like God's stragglers. But as we go on in chapter 7, we see that God was working his purposes out. We've, of course, already seen it through the completion of the wall, uh, despite opposition. But it carries on in chapter 7 with the hope of the repopulation of Jerusalem. In verse 5, Nehemiah, seeing that the city is basically empty, digs out the genealogical record of those who returned from exile. And most of the 73 verses of chapter 7 consist of of this list, this record. It might strike us as a long, boring list um, as we look down at it, but it's actually a wonderful list. We don't have time to read it all now, but just glance down at those uh, numbers of the different groups of people that came back. It starts with 2,172, 372, 652, 2,818, and it goes on and on and on. Look at that list and marvel at the fact that each of those individual people represents someone through whom God was fulfilling His purposes 
by bringing them back out of exile. Back in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, we read uh, part of Nehemiah's wonderful prayer that he prays, uh, says this, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people, people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And here is a wonderful list of those God was bringing back. It shows us God in action, keeping his promise to his people. It's a wonderful list. How it must have motivated Nehemiah uh, to be enduring opposition, to see God fulfilling his promises in this way. And of course, God is still fulfilling his promises today. He couldn't ultimately bring his people back to himself without sending his son to seek and to save the lost. He has done that, and today he sends us out not only to be disciples of Jesus, but to make disciples also to hold out the good news of Jesus so that others might hear it and come to put their trust in him as well. If we're doing that, we can expect to face opposition just as Jesus did. But through our doing that, God is fulfilling his purposes. Each morning walking to church, I pass the yoga studio up on St. John's Hill. It has a big uh, doormat at the front door that reads, leave the world at the door. It's a, it's a nice thought, kind of, to leave, your, leave your worries behind and, uh, and forget about your concerns. But it struck me this week, walking past it while I was thinking about this passage, that the opposite of what that doormat says will be on the doormat, if you like, of the new Jerusalem. That doormat will say, bring the people of the world in. Back to our passage in Revelation that we were looking at. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. As God fulfills his purposes, people from every nation will be welcomed in. Uh, The passage goes on, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's clear from the end of Nehemiah chapter 7 that it was really important for the Israelites to be able to find their name on that list that Nehemiah found in order to prove that they really were Israelites after being out of the promised land for so many years. But the list you really want your name to appear on is the list of names in the Lamb's book of life, Jesus' book of life, the list of all those who through him have eternal life and will be welcomed into the new Jerusalem. That's the list that it's vital to be on. And the wonderful news is that if we are following Jesus today, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. God has been fulfilling his purposes in such a way that we've been welcomed into his family and can look forward to life with him always. What better reason to endure opposition now could there be? We can endure opposition knowing that as we do his work, for which we will be opposed, God is fulfilling his purposes. If we are faithfully living as God's people, we should expect opposition. It will come. We should be ready for it. But we have the most wonderful motivation in the world for enduring it. As we live for him and endure opposition, God is fulfilling his purposes. Just as he was in Nehemiah's day, so he is today working to bring about his kingdom once and for all, his people in his place under his rule and blessing. 
we can endure opposition now with the assurance that we'll be part of that then. Let's stand to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are working your purposes out. Thank you that you have always been working your purposes out, uh, that one day you will bring them perfectly to fulfillment, your people in your place under your rule and blessing. And Lord, even as we look forward to that day, we pray that you would help us to endure opposition now. Heavenly Father, you, you warn us that we will face opposition if we are living as disciples of Jesus. Some of us may be all too aware of, uh, of opposition we are facing at the moment for following him. Uh, whether we are facing it now or will face it in the future, pray that you would prepare us for that, that you would give us wisdom to see it and, uh, and the courage to endure and resist it, Lord. Help us to endure opposition, knowing uh, that as we live for you, even as we're opposed for doing so, that you are working out your purposes and we can look forward to the day when they will be brought about uh, in, in their full perfection. In Jesus' name, amen.